David Kern. I'm Heidi Way. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are answering your questions about Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. That's right, we are now in our final episode on The Scarlet Letter, which sadly means it's our final episode for this year, unless something comes up with Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, this has been so fun, but we are going to miss you. I know. Well, I'm going to miss you guys too. So it's so great to be back and it has become kind of a tradition. So hopefully we'll do it again. That's Yeah, right. we'll have to consider, you know, one of your other editions or although we've covered most of them or maybe, who knows, maybe even another book you just happen to love. Um, yeah, we could do that. Yeah. A book that maybe was almost made your list of editions that you oh, did for like Teenage, but didn't quite make the cut because mm-hmm. this would give you another chance to uh, apologize for that book. You know, not what apologize because you, know, you feel bad been? for it. But yeah, what did you consider that didn't make it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, I, of course, considered all of the Jane Austen novels, you know, and sure. picked, yeah. picked, you know, I picked Sense and Sensibility because I thought we all need to balance that, just like Austen True. said. Um, and the another one... Now, mind you, I had to keep within... Uh, there are a lot of books I would have done if they were in public domain. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. Um, which The Great Gatsby just came into public domain, I That's think, right. this year. And I that That's was right. not what I wanted to do. But it's the other one I seriously considered was Robinson Crusoe. Mm. So, yeah. That would yeah. have been good. Yeah, yeah. Do you think... So you think Robinson Crusoe... And I, this is, I haven't read it since I was probably in high school or something so this is not a leading question <laughs> but you then you think that robinson crusoe really holds up to the other novels of the era and to the examination that other novels get no oh okay <laughs> but um i mean not as a novel i wouldn't i actually don't even consider it a novel because it's okay. a pre-novel sure, but i do sure. think it's something uh that would interest you know my readers, my audience, mm. and um, does, I, I mean, as a work of, of literature, it's not as great, but as a work, of, I mean, I mean, as a, as a novel, it's not that great, but I think as a work of literature and history, it, mm. it, it is, and it, mm. and it offers a lot and invites a lot of questions. So I did end up writing about it in the evangelical imagination. So it all works out. Oh, that's a good plug. Evangelical <laughs> imagination coming out soon. August 8th. Yes. August 8th. Very soon. Bookstores near you. Yes. Or if you must online. Um, okay, so yeah, I uh, yeah. <laughs> I just made a face when I said that. That kind of was how it I was felt a laugh. when I was saying it. It was an agreeable yeah. laugh. I was agreeing <laughs> with you. It was amiable. Amiable. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we are here to answer listener questions, and we've got plenty of them. So I want to dig right in. As always, fair warning: these these Q and A's can feel a little bit like jumping around because you know it's hard to transition nicely from from one question to another when you're trying to get through 20 plus questions. Um, So here's a question for you, Karen, that I wanted to start with. It's from Deborah, And she said, Karen stated that she thought there were several morals to the book. One, she mentioned that hidden guilt kills, but she alluded to others. What are they? Now, I want to also add to this. Do you think that Hawthorne would want us to put a tidy Aesop's fable style fable uh, uh, moral on the story in the way that 
the question kind of suggests, uh, and I think the question is suggesting it because it did come up a little bit in conversation. And, and I think we use the word morals. So I'm just curious what mm-hmm. you think of that. And then, yeah, what I'll, I'll answer that morals? one first. So, so, I mean, I think that I think that Hawthorne invites um, more moral interpretation of his works. I think, you know, they are fables in that sense and tales and, and tales do that. I don't think he necessarily wants us to land on just just one or even um, more, you know, with with. It's it's not as clear cut and as simple and straightforward as an Aesop's fable, but I do mm-hmm. think the way that he writes invites and asks for this kind of moral interpretation. Um, so yeah, so uh, but the question, the the first part of the question, let's see, let's see, I wrote about this in the introduction, so should perhaps I should review what I wrote in answer. Should we pausing the question? Um, and so what was the one that she gave the, about hidden guilt, right? The hidden guilt kills. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, another one, and I, I think we touched upon this in uh, one of the episodes. And, you know, it's, some might object that this is sort of putting a, um, a present day lens on an older work. But I, I think I think it's uh, very legitimate. And that has to do with like um, spiritual <clears throat> abuse or religious abuse, abuse of authority um, over someone under that authority, um, you know, obviously I'm talking about Hester, you know, this is a, a story about adultery, but it's also a story about, um, you know, clergy sexual abuse is what we call it today. And Hawthorne wouldn't have had um, those words, but it, um, I think he makes it pretty, you know, clear, even if, if, if subtly so in the text. And we talked about that when Hester, you know, appeals to him and hints how she, he knew, you know, he knew her soul better than anyone else. And um, Mm -hmm. he understood those dynamics. Um, Let's see, what else did I, um, yeah, I I think another, um, I don't know if this is so much a moral, but it's certainly a prominent theme that we can do a lot with. And that is the presence of the supernatural. I mean, Hawthorne seems to believe or he presents a world in which the supernatural is present and real, at least in a phenomenological way. Um, and it affects our lives. It affects our spiritual lives. It affects the way we view our neighbors and the way we construct our, our judicial systems and so forth. And so I think that Hawthorne, you know, again, it's not necessarily a moral. I mean, we could turn it into one, like don't ignore the spiritual realm or the spiritual aspect of, of our being. So those, those would be a couple more that come off the top of my head. Okay, Heidi, I got a question for you, kind of a follow-up question. Um, what is the difference, do you think, and Karen, you can jump into, um, what do you think the difference is between reading for and identifying a moral and reading for and identifying a theme because sometimes some you know the way you phrased some of those things karen you phrased as if you know almost like you were identifying themes and then you had to restate them almost as a moral Hmm. and it seems like there's kind of a fine line there and they're reading moralistically is a term that can sometimes be you know used as a negative thing a little, a little critically amongst at least among not i'm not not among everybody of course but um and so i'm wondering what's the difference there where does that fine line sit <laughs> what does a line do i think it just sits 
I love this question so much. I love it, love it, love it. Um, I think that, frankly, in a very, I'm going to say something kind of Hawthorne-ish right now. I think that Christians are tend to over-moralize books. Um, and so I love this question a lot. And I'm guilty of this. I'm I'm certainly not indicting anybody other than myself. But, well, I mean, I just did, but I am including myself in my own indictment. <laughs> um, and uh, I think because we live in a moral world uh, and because we, uh, our culture um, has kind of left behind the idea of, of moral reality, um, and yet we Christians know we live in 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 a moral in a moral reality. Then the, we we have it. We try to find them everywhere, right? Overcompensate. Um, and so I really like this question because it gets to the heart of I think how to read uh, properly as a Christian, not just in an academic sense, right? Um, and so a theme is something intrinsic to the work. It's something interior. A moral is something that is that that takes the story outside of itself and places it in the context of, of, an, of external reality. Um, and, uh, and so when we only read to moralize, we fail the text, right? Because the text is its own enclosed world. It's not just there so that we can come up with some kind of how thou sh- then shall we live, right? Um, and this book is particularly um like it, it kind of in, it, it invites a moral because Hawthorne is a moral writer, uh, and and so it's too easy for us, I think, to say, well, this is the moral, and hey, look, I'm not guilty of it, and so, you know, I don't really need this book or whatever. Um, or or um, the other side would be everybody needs to read this book so they don't have sex before marriage or judge other people, right? The text is not just a moral guideline. The moral guideline is the moral guideline and the text is its own world. Um, and so we need to, to let it be that a theme, however, as Karen said, um, is something interior to the work. And so sometimes a theme, uh, has a, has a, um, has a moral I guess it always is a moral weight to it, but sometimes you can extrapolate a moral from it. And those two things can overlap really naturally. Um, but it's it's better to take the theme within the book and enter into the story and let the story be our guide to find the theme. Um, and in a book like this, that is overtly moralistic, um, that it takes a little bit of work, I think, and subtlety to be able to separate those two and do honor to the theme, which is more complicated than the moral. Hmm. Karen, would you like to, you were kind of nodding here and there as um, she was talking. Yeah, no, I, I'm so excited about this question and this discussion. So um, I don't, hopefully we'll have time for other questions. No. Um, <laughs> so no, I completely agree with and love the way Heidi put it, that the moral is kind of like is something exterior to the work that we apply. Um, a, a sort of phrasing that I picked up, I don't, I think, I think since I began teaching it, it probably was in a textbook, so I'm not taking credit for it. Um, but I have no idea where it came from is um, this idea of um, when we read a text, a literary text, we read on the lines, for the literal meaning and between the lines for um, the 
thematic meaning, like what, what the work is saying, and then um, beyond the lines for how it applies to real life. So that would be in the terms that Heidi used, that would be like the exterior world. So we want to just, you know, uh, on the lines, between the lines, and beyond the lines is how to read any good text. And we want to do all of them, but we can't do one at the expense of the other, or we really can't do any well without the others. And then, the, but then the other thing that I would say, I would kind of give a give an opposite answer, is that there is a way in which there are um, there's a group of words that we would use in literary discussion that are fairly synonymous. They aren't exactly the same, but when I'm teaching beginning um, readers at the college level, I, you know, I really try to make them think about the difference between form and content. We want to pay attention to the form of the work, the literary form, and then the content. And we literally make up a, a, a list of words, of synonyms for these words, words that would go along with form, like style and structure, and words that would go along with content, like theme and idea and moral. And again, there are differences in those, but sometimes when we say, oh, what's the moral of the story? We do mean kind of the, the theme or the or the idea. So sometimes we use these words in similar ways, And but Heidi was really right to bring out, uh, sometimes we're not using them in similar ways and to make sure we, we know what we're, what we're asking for when we're reading, whether we're asking or looking for something that the text is making very clear or we're looking for something to apply to the outside world. So um, it's a great question. And, you know, I feel like I would be remiss right now to not mention that you did write a book called On Reading Well, which does address <laughs> questions related Directly to this. Directly yeah. addresses this. <laughs> um, so people should go check that out. Um, okay. Again, this is a QA. and a We don't have time to dig in too much more, and it's going to feel abrupt, but... Okay, here's one uh, for you, Heidi. Uh, Mary Ellen says, Heidi, you repeatedly use the expression on the nose, which I don't remember you saying prior to this book. Could you just clarify what that what you mean by this? Sure. This should uh, take this you too long. A simple answer. I just mean too obvious, right? Um, and uh, when when an author does that and we disparage it on the show, it's usually because the author isn't or doesn't seem to be trusting the audience enough to get there on our own with his uh, or her um, writing and so tells us instead of shows us in the text, um, tells us what to think, tells us how to interpret uh, in 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 a way that kind of takes us outside of the story instead of trusting us to get there on 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 our own. So, and I think Hawthorne does that like all the time. <laughs> Karen, do you want anything? Uh, she shakes her head. Okay, here's one. Karen, I'll start with you uh, on this one. This is from Emily. For whom did Hawthorne write the Scarlet Letter? She says, I've been kicking the question around in my mind throughout our reading. Obviously, he didn't write it for the bygone Puritans. Did he write it for his fellow Americans? Did he see something puritanical in them that needed to be brought to the light? Or did Hawthorne write it for himself as he wrestled with his family's past? Who do you think Hawthorne's tale was originally for? This is a great question. Um, and Hawthorne was, you know, hoping or attempting or dreaming of writing the great American novel. We have that in his correspondence. He was writing, you know, he, he was friends with other, um, you know, great American writers, like especially Herman Melville. Um, and so these were um, conscientiously, consciously, deliberately literary writers who um, were trying to write um, literature as opposed to um, 
you know, I mean, today we still have, we have writers who just write, you know, like pulp fiction or commercial fiction and others who write literary art, um, uh, literary fiction. And there's still a distinction today. Um, And so I think that Hawthorne was writing for um, the literati, um, which probably, you know, relatively speaking, would be more of the population than them today. I I, I don't know how to say that, but hopefully that makes sense. Um, But the other part of the question, I mean, I think, you know, and I I talk about this a little bit in the introduction, I think. you know, um, he was writing for uh, a new nation that, you know, yeah, pretty, pretty new, um, that mm-hmm. was coming, you know, that had a people that had been in this land for a while, um, and the Puritans, um, but had come emerged from sort of that identity and it was forging a new one. Um, and that's why there's so many references that we've talked about to sort of old England and new England. Um, and so I think he was challenging his fellow literary Americans um, regarding their puritanical past and their new future as, you know, which, which is not a future. That he, Hawthorne didn't, I don't think he believed that you could just like completely put your past behind, um, you know, as Faulkner said in a later century um what is it he said now you know the past is never really dead it's never even past um yeah yeah yeah. so i think i think Hawthorne understands that and so he's looking at the past but also trying to um to help his fellow countrymen think about what it means to be in a, a new country um based on liberty and freedom and all those things Heidi, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think that's right. I I think that he is exactly, he's writing to the critics, right? He's writing uh, to speak into the American letters. Uh, and in that, I think he succeeded, although he certainly didn't write the great American novel, but he definitely set the tone for American literature, which is why one of the reasons why we continue to read him today. Um, I think he was also writing to, just like you said, what was going on in England was a was there was parallels between this puritanical society from the past and an existing Victorian moralism. And and he, I think, was speaking to that in order to attempt maybe to awaken the American conscience and cast out that way of thinking and judging, uh, as well as pointing out that America, because unlike the continent, unlike Europe, that stands, at least it's certainly at the time, on tradition, America was standing in a sense on what we now call virtue signaling, right? Like, yes, look, we're so much better than you guys. You guys tried and failed, but we're doing it right. We're standing on these enlightenment principles and we are, you know, a city on the hill. And 25 years from having a civil war. Exactly. And I think Hawthorne saw the cracks in that and and was trying to create a uniquely American story from an American past that spoke into that virtue signaling tendency within the American psyche that I think is alive and well today. Um, and and in that sense, I think that he diagnosed a particular societal trend in America that continues. Um, and I, I also think he was writing in a sense also to his own psychological wounds, right? I think there's, there's this, there's, 
there is him like preaching on one hand and then him confessing on the other. And, and, and that is, uh, creates a really interesting um, kind of tone to his work. It feels just as confessional as it does moralistic. And I, and I think that's really interesting. So I think he was also writing to exorcise some of his own demons. Hmm. That's interesting. We just uh, did a, did our retreat on brothers, Car brothers Karamazov. And uh, I kept, thinking that Dostoevsky is kind of like that too. I mean, Hawthorne's not, in my opinion, Dostoevsky totally skill-wise, but he's still, exactly. but he's still, he's both preaching and confessing at the same time, uh, sometimes in the same line. Um, and maybe that's one of the things that some of the greatest writers do is mm -hmm. no matter what the subject is, they're both spilling out a confession from their own conscience and awakening, you know, the conscience, somebody else's conscience. It's like a, pivot point of conscience or something. Okay. Uh, we have to going to have to think about that in that yeah. metaphor that doesn't make sense. Yeah, can I jump on that? Because it's a, such a rich idea. So it's just sort of a, you know, we have all heard the um, truism for writers, write what you know. Hmm. Um, and so anyone who wants to write needs to do that and hopefully does that. But what helps, what contributes to great writers or being great is that what they know is something, I mean, this, again, this is no revelation to listeners of this podcast, but, you know, it is something that pertains to the human condition. So I think this idea mm. that's universal. And so this idea of, of, of a writer who is preaching and confessing, like that's true of us all, right? We all have things that we want to say, and we all have things we need to confess. Yes. And so you often, you know, so I think, for example, of a, of a work like, so we're talking about American literature, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, or, you know, Gone with the Wind. I mean, that's, they're in the same category, but um, let's just stick with Uncle Tom's Cabin. It, it did a, a great thing in this country and so forth that's complicated, but it really had something more to say than to confess. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the right, the writer was not confessing her sure. own. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, it just occurs to me that this is part of, I think, what distinguishes, you know, great literature or lasting literature from the stuff that is forgotten is that, that there is a confession there. The writer knows what it is to be human and confesses that. So. Mm -hmm. And even when they're preaching, it doesn't if it's really going to last, it's got to be that preaching has to be wrapped up in in the drama and in the characters so that it, you know, it's like taking medicine in a way that doesn't taste terrible. <laughs> um, because really the best, you know, if you, if it's going to preach at you, it needs to linger. It can't just be something you can just swat away. It needs to get, enter into your soul and your psyche and it needs to kind of be there for a while and work on you. Um, which is, you know, I, th I think great books, That's we talk about it all the time, right? I don't know. I, you, may, you might say something like, I just read a book. I'm probably never going to think about it again. And then you read some books where you're like, I don't know what I thought of it. And then six months later, you're like, I think about that book all the time. Um, and in the moment, you weren't sure. Um, okay, speaking of confession, here is a question from Lily. It's got kind of two parts to it. Okay, I'll just, read, I'll just read both of them. So just bear with me for a second here. She writes, Hawthorne writes that Dimsdale had a tapestry depicting the story of David Bathsheba and Nathan, the prophet on the wall of his chambers. It's pretty clear that David and Bathsheba correlate to Arthur and Hester, but the connection of Nathan to Chillingsworth does not seem to match perfectly. 
In the Bible, Nathan's confrontation with, with David was on God's behalf, relatively brief, and moved David to acknowledge his transgressions. So is Hawthorne saying Chillingsworth's role in the story is both of God and of the devil, or am I reading too much into this connection? Also, it's interesting that Pearl survives while David and Bathsheba's child dies. The biblical story also has a similar power dynamic to the one presented in the novel. So was Hawthorne pointing out the power differential between Dimsdale and Hester, a concept that was possibly before his time, or was he reading the story through the more traditional adultery interpretation? Interpretation. Karen, you want to take this one first? That is such a great question. Um, it really is. And so, I I mean, I just, off the top of my head, I think that Chillingworth is Nathan um, in, you know, in, in, in this, you know, parallel. But the, the difference, is, as we said, even a, a question or two ago, is that Hawthorne is showing, you know, showing us what guilt that is not confessed, uh, a repentance that is not truly made or well-made looks like. So we have, I think Chillingworth is sort of a, a Nathan, but things turn out badly because um, because our David, our Dimsdale um, doesn't, you know, we could argue whether he's repentant or not, but um, but he certainly does not confess, at least in a, in any meaningful way, let alone a public way. So that, that would be my answer. I think, it, I think it's, I mean, it's obviously very meaningful that that tapestry is there. Um, the other part of the question, yeah, I, and I, I mean, I do think that Hawthorne does see the power differential. I just don't think that he highlights it or emphasizes it or understands it maybe as much as, as we do today, just because, um, because, you know, equality, well, equality was becoming a thing, but it wasn't as much a thing. So. Another possible interpretation I like that. I really like the point about the unconfessed sin with David. Um, another possible interpretation is that Hawthorne himself plays the role of Nathan, um, because the one-to-one -one correlation would be Chillingworth as Uriah, right? Um, and so that, and that obviously falls apart, but it almost doesn't, right? Because he was gone and he, he was presumed dead. Um, and so if he had, and, and then in his absence and presumed death was when the adultery took place. So that's yet another, and what's nice about, nice, that's a funny adjective to use. What's so nice about uh, allegory is that, it's, <laughs> it, that it can be fluid like that, right? You can, um, can let the story speak for itself as well as connecting it to another story, an illusion. Um, so that, that but I, I like that question a lot. Unless you're John Bunyan, then it's, there's no room. Yeah, there's no room for that. That's, I know, but you know, we can't, I, I can't overtly, maybe I can, but I feel guilty about overtly bashing that because it's such a beloved story and it is great for kids, but. No, yeah. it is. And I'm not, I'm not bashing it. I'm just like, I just want to point out it's not my favorite because of that. <laughs> it's too, it's not fluid enough. It's not mythological. It's not mythopoeic. It's too on allegory, the nose. Allegory is just, it, there's just a, a wide swath of allegory. That's right. That's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I love this next question. This is from Emily. But you're going to have to, she puts in two C.S. Lewis quotes here as context for her question. So you're going to have to bear with me as I read them. So I'm going to ask you the question and then read the quotes and then we'll come back to it. But she says, um, if you could receive the story of the Scarlet Letter using any art form, including Hawthorne's book, what art form would you choose? For example, I'd pick an opera and a stained glass narrative scene. So here's the thoughts behind the question, she says. I've been mulling the, over the question of why I find the Scarlet Letter more interesting to talk about than to read. 
I think it's because the story is more interesting than the writing. I keep returning to Lewis's idea of the myth versus the packaging of the myth. He writes, the myth gets under our skin, hits us at a level deeper than our thoughts or even our passions, troubles oldest certainties till all questions are reopened, and in general, shocks us more fully awake than we are for most of our lives. Emily says, the story of the Scarlet Letter haunts me in a good way, and I don't want to forget it, but the book I feel happy to put aside. Um, then she quotes Lewis again. In a myth, in a story where the mere pattern of events is all that matters, any means of communication, communication whatever, which succeeds in lodging those events in our imagination has, as we say, done the trick. After that, you can throw the, throw the means of communication away. End quote. She says that this describes the Scarlet Letter for her. I didn't enjoy much of the reading, overused metaphors, emotional appeals condescending explanations but i absolutely loved the tale and i'm wondering if it's hawthorne's story that made the novel a masterpiece not his writing so going back to the question that hopefully gave you a second to you know it's like when i you know ramble a little bit to give you time to think if you could receive the story of the scarlet letter in any art form including hawthorne's book what art form would you choose uh heidi i'll let you go first I love this question and <laughs> opera and stained glass. Like I just want to clap for you. That is who's, whose comment is this? Sorry. I was muted. Emily. Emily. I think it was Emily Abernathy. Yep. Emily slow clap. That is perfect. Um, I think maybe ballet as well would be a really beautiful way to to put this story. Um, but I really like the idea of opera and stained glass is great because I see this story in such a vivid color in my mind. Um, and I also see it with, with form, right? Like the posh, like Hester's posture, she's standing on the scaffold. Um, and her, uh, her like dimmed beauty later on with the cap. Like I, I see it vivid color and, um, and, and human posture and form. Uh, and so I really love the idea of stained glass, um, because I think it could really capture the pathos of the story in still images and when fragments i just think that's a beautifully it's a, such a beautiful way of of telling this story but i and i think also dance because i i see lots of dramatic movements from the characters dimsdale like holding back and like a sinister kind of melodramatic um chillingworth and uh hester like you know snidely whiplash kind of character um in ballet would be really cool so i i think maybe those two Karen, what about you that is, yeah, it's a really great question. So I'm going to answer it negatively um, and say not film and not yeah. drama because, and especially not film with Demi Moore or whatever. Yeah. I think there's one with her. Yeah. yeah. Um, but because of, because, because of, you know, the many places we've talked about where Hawthorne, you know, says, you know, did this happen or, you know, people saw this and someone else saw this, like to put it on film, you you can't, you'd have to like make it a blurry hallucination, which would be so terrible and cheesy to, to evoke the sort of uncertainty of it. So not those forms. I think that's why they don't work. Um, even in, you know, as, as successful adaptations, I like all the other answers. The, the first answer that prop that um, popped into my mind because I'm a, I'm a word person is, you know, a poem, 
I think you could do a lot with a with a like, like a lady a sort of, of shallot type. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and maybe even a little bit less fixed in form to to adjust for different moods of it. But you could ask questions and um, achieve emphasis um, with all the poetic um, structures and ideas. So that would be my other answer. But the other ones are much more creative and better, I think. <laughs> okay. Um... Here's one from Suzanne. Uh, Chillingsworth and Dimsdale to a lesser degree reminded me of Gollum when he no longer holds the ring and loses his vitality. I guess the same thing happened to Bilbo too. I was confused by Hawthorne's comparison of love and hate. They both are powerful means of blessing and cursing. So what does he mean? Um, Then she reads the quote, in the spiritual world, the old physician and the minister, mutual victims as they have been, may unawares have found their earthly stock of hatred and antipathy transmuted into golden love, end quote. Um, and then she says, uh, why do who do you think Hawthorne had in mind with destined prophetess and angel and apostle of the coming revelation? Is that Pearl, the future ideal woman America needs? Question marks. Um, she's got a couple other ones here. So let's start with let's start with that last one. Karen, what do you think? This line of the destined prophetess and an angel and apostle of the coming revelation. Yeah, is that that in that last um I think it's right there in the last chapter, right? Yeah, yeah, we looked at that before. Um, I don't think I actually. Yeah, there it is. I don't um, think that it's Pearl. Um, I. It's just interesting. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it just he says it must be a woman. Um, you know, it, it's almost like Hawthorne. What is that T-shirt that used to be popular for a while? The future is female or something like that um you know it it it, it, you know that's a very watered down version but it just um yeah Hawthorne really is saying something about America about redemption about um about the future not only of men and women but of humanity um it's almost it, it also reminds me of that beautiful um artwork that comes out usually around Christmas time, but any time of, of uh, the painting of the pregnant um, Eve or the, the pregnant Mary, what is it uh, being um, touched the by? Comforting, she's comforting a grieving Eve. Yes, yes. yes. There's a serpent there somewhere wrapped around someone's like, like it, yeah. it just, um, that's the imagery that this reminds me of is that redemption uh, will come through women. Um, it's a very, you know, theologically rich idea uh and i think it goes far beyond you know both hester and pearl i think that's right uh the story opens with the image of the rose bush at the jailhouse and the reference to Anne hutchinson um and uh and then i think that that's extremely significant right um hawthorne seems to really understand that women are deeply powerful not only psychologically but in as as nationally right um and that images of feminine identity are uh formative to an entire culture i really like that the first that that you thought about this yeah i'm doing a whole talk on this on the conference um at the circe conference because i think it's really powerful and i'm referencing the scarlet letter because uh with 
with Hester, Hawthorne's very clear that Hester had the capacity to uh, impact her Puritan society. Uh, she was just that kind of woman, her, her beauty, her power, right? It had an impact and that she fell short through violating her moral duty. Um, and, and that because she had such great potential, she had a correspondingly great fall, right? And, but he doesn't indict her for that. He indicts the culture itself for it. So it's complicated. Like, and, and, and Anne Hutchinson has this uh, haunting presence of being a, uh, a, 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 a redemptive force. And then Mother Hibbins or Mistress Hibbins has this uh, kind of decadent force of femininity. And both of them kind of haunt the story, book in the story from one side to the other. And Hester's continually trying to find herself in there. And she finds herself as an object of desire, but she's exploited. And that's not her fault. Um, but he said, he seems to be saying that, um, that women have a great amount of power a huge amount of power. And so the attempt of men to dominate women isn't because women don't have power, but because they have so much and that cultures and individuals have to be careful with that. And, and I think that that is, that's why Pearl needed in the story to be such an ungovernable force because we just don't know what will happen to this girl who is the convergence of all of these different things through no fault of her own. And she is the next generation of American womanhood. And the question so, is left open whether, and I think Hawthorne is not on the nose in this in a really good way. The question is left open on what that means for our culture. So uh, Suzanne has another question here that she follows up with that I haven't read yet. And she says, what about uh, Chillingsworth bequeathing his property to Pearl? Was this a concession on his part to his defeat? Does it bode well for Pearl? And then this bit, does it say anything about the inheritance from Puritanism to American feminism in history pre or post Hawthorne? So, it, so do you, do you want to tie that in at all? Do you think there is a tie in to be made there, Heidi? Yeah. Um, I don't think that Hawthorne is deeply prophetic in this novel. A lot of times there's, um, you know, you read it, you read a book and you're like, wow, this author couldn't have been more prophetic. We do that with C.S. Lewis all the time and we're right, you know. I just um, had a conversation about that in the bookstore yes. today. <laughs> um, I think that Hawthorne is more asking questions than than prophesying the future of feminism in America. Um, but with his also his repeated references to the Virgin Mary, uh, I think he sees this as a religious question as well as a cultural one. Um, and he is also, I think, potentially pointing out a gap in um, the American Protestant identity that doesn't have an icon of femininity the same way that the Catholic Church offers. And he seems to be asking, okay, what are we going to fill that with then? Um, and he gives us all of these different women. Um, so I think he's commenting on that just as much as he's or raising the question, maybe not commenting as much as he's raising the question. Um, and so I don't I don't think he's necessarily making a prophecy about the future as much as he is just saying, hey, guys, what are we going to do about this, that the power of femininity in this particular cultural moment that harkens back to Puritanism? Hmm. Aaron, anything to add to that? 
I feel like you've studied this, Karen. No, 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 no I, I have not. No, this actually, this is a new uh, line that I'm thinking for me, and it's very mm. fruitful, I think. So, uh, because because in answering this question, I'm thinking, okay, what does Shillingworth really represent? And maybe this is an obvious thing that I should have thought about more before, or maybe we've been talked about it, but somehow I didn't make the connection. But you know, so Shillingworth really is sort of old Europe in many ways, right? The, I mean, he is an old man who married young Hester. Mm. Um, and, mm. and this connects with something that Heidi said, just sort of a, in a different direction. And so young America, a young Hester is inheriting <laughs> old Europe. Um, that's, that's part of, that's our past. That's part of our, our heritage. Um, and so Pearl is inheriting, you know, old Europe, um, along with this new, uh, newer American Puritanism. So, mm. um, and, and, you know, and I, I, my first instinct was I, I, to, in answer to this question was, I don't want to overread this, right? I mean, this is just a good way of sort of showing, you know, tying up loose ends and showing something about Chillingworth's character. But as soon as I thought that, I said, no, because I mean, <laughs> everything in here has some sort of symbolic meaning and Hawthorne didn't have to throw that sort of extraneous detail in. I mean, it's, it's really, it's an important detail um, hmm. and it seems very purposeful. And so that's my interpretation is Schillingworth is like old Europe and we can't get rid of him for good or bad. I mean, it's, it's a gift and a, and, and a burden. Hmm. Um. Okay, again, this is going to be an awkward transition here. It's Q&A awkwardness. But here's a question from Elise. One of the things, side note, that I appreciate about this group so much is how ecumenical it is. Um, there's so many people from a wide variety of traditions, whether it's uh, Baptists or you know Orthodox or Catholic or Reformed, whatever it is, and everyone's generally able to have these conversations in a civil and... Uh, uh, delightful fashion. And this is one of those questions that I think is, is, um, reminds me of, of that reality, because here's a question from Elise that says in regards to the spirituality of this novel, something I've been so intrigued by this reading as a Catholic is the ambiguous references to Catholicism and its beliefs. There are the seemingly positive comparisons of Hester to the Virgin Mary and to a nun slash sister of mercy in her charity towards others. There's also a focus on the pain of unconfessed sin and recovery from serious sin that can't but bring up the comfort of sacramental confession and absolution to my mind, says Elise, um, even though it may not be on Hawthorne's mind. On the other hand, Catholic beliefs are directly critiqued in the discussions of Dimsdale's excessive penitential practices and the issues of abusive hierarchies in religious communities where such hierarchies exist is as much a Catholic problem as a Puritan problem. So I'm just curious as to A, why he references Catholicism so much specifically, as far as I recall, the only other form of Christianity specifically referenced aside from Puritanism. And B, what is his general attitude towards Catholicism and how does it compare to Puritanism in his estimation? And then C, how his references to Catholicism relate to the themes he's trying to get across. So Karen, I'll just put this one to you first a little more generally. What do we know about his approaches to Catholicism? Yeah, um, so I, I, I mean, I, I can answer more in a broader historical sense than I can um, sure. in terms of his his personal views, but simply, I mean, it's simply that you don't have Puritanism without Catholicism. So those, you know, it's sort of a binary set that goes together. And so, mm -hmm. um, because Puritanism 
formed specifically out of the effort to purify uh, the newly established English church of its Catholicity, its remaining mm -hmm. Catholicity. And so, so the, they the two go together. I mean, we sense that a lot less um, in, you know, in, in contemporary culture because we're, we're much further removed from it. But for Hawthorne, that would not have been far removed at all, even, even, you know, in the 19th century. But so what Hawthorne, I, what I think Hawthorne is doing in the cases of a case of both Puritanism and Catholicism, and this is the kind of thing that gets left out in the stereotypical kinds of teaching of the Scarlet Letter is sort of an anti, you know, Puritan novel. It's so much more than that. But he's showing the excesses of both, right? So he's he's attacking Puritan excess as much as he's, you know, maybe actually, you know, less so, but he's still showing the excesses of, of Catholicism and Puritanism. Um, and I think sort of trying to point to um, a middle way um, for, for America, um, for its future. And so he's. I, I think he, I don't think he's any more anti-Catholic than he is anti-Puritan, and maybe we think he, he's anti-both. Uh, but I think he's really just pointing to the excesses and pointing out the error of excess. Hmm. Heidi. Yeah. So I really like what you said, um, Karen. He was not Catholic, but he was Catholic friendly. But he was and. Scarlet Letter was written early enough in his career. He wasn't as Catholic friendly at the time he wrote that as he was later on. He was definitely Catholic curious. Um, and uh, in The Marble Fawn, he overtly uh, addresses the connection between Catholicism and um, European culture and its impact on American culture. And he presents Catholicism very favorably in the Marble Fawn. However, um, he is, um, his daughter is a Catholic saint. Um, she converted and and spent her life doing incredible really? good works. Yes, yes. Her name's Rose. Oh, I didn't know. Um, I did yeah. not know this. And she's been canonized within the church. And she credits her father with an early introduction to the Catholic Church, although she does not say that he was Catholic. Um, so we really don't know where he was upon his death. Um, but we know that his journey was kind of leading towards Rome and in the next generation, his daughter is indeed was Catholic. Um, but I, I really just love what you said about that, the binary idea. And so in presenting uh, Puritanism, he had to present what Puritanism is a response to um, and why the idea of the purity of the city on the hill was so incredibly core to Puritan identity in America. They were there, the separatists were there, Puritan separatists were there to build a Christian society, a Puritan society in response to um, the life in Europe um, when they felt they could not, even though Europe was no longer overtly Catholic, um, it was still characterized by excesses um, of, you know, an idea, the idea of like the works righteousness mentality and the overreaching of the state um, into controlling people's consciences. Um, and, and so that 
is an important part to put in there. I also think that he is searching for some kind of religious feminine iconography to portray femininity and in the in his in kind of a what he senses as a vacuum of that um imaginative iconography of femininity he pulls in catholic iconography he pulls in the idea of the virgin mary the roses that kind of thing um which i think creates a very is i don't know if it's meant to be as religious as much as literary in that sense hmm. Can I just um, point, since this reader asked this question, can I point her and mm -hmm. other, anyone else who cares, um, to this wonderful final essay um, in Flannery O'Connor's Mystery and Manners. Um, I think the title of it is, in, in that collection, is A Memoir of Marianne, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but it, it tells some of the story of, of Rose Hawthorne um, and her work at an um, an orphanage space or you know a hospital for sick children and there's a little anecdote in there about Hawthorne encountering a very sick child it's very I can't recreate it it's a very it's very touching because it's, it's, it's Hawthorne Hawthorne writes it but he writes it in the third person and as hmm. though it's about someone else but the essay reveals that it really was about Hawthorne ha having this this encounter with this um very sick child um in a very like human moment and so um it's a, it's a wonderful essay in itself, but it has this very moving anecdote about Nathaniel Hawthorne um, as relayed by, I think it is, it is his daughter in this essay. Um, th there's a question here from Elizabeth, which um, is uh, as related as I'm gonna be able to get a question <laughs> to this topic. And and I don't, I wanna get a couple more in before we let you go. Elizabeth says, we have read about three women with babies out of wedlock in the 19th century. Anna. Uh, Anna Karenina, Tess from Tess the Durbervilles, and Hester from The Scarlet Letter. In the British and Russian stories, one baby dies and the other is relegated to being a bastard unloved by her mother. In the American story, Pearl has a distinctly American character. She's wild, rebellious, holding her mother to account, and eventually growing up and marrying who she wants. Am I letting my American exceptionalism biases overstate these differences? It seems to me Pearl could not have been the child in a British or Russian 19th century story. Their societies could not fathom such independence of the next generation. But I'm so inclined to this view that I can't tell if it's accurate. Karen, please help, she says. I, I'm totally buying this. No, I think this is a brilliant insight. Um, you know, again, I don't know American literature as well, even though I wrote about this book. But one of the things that um, that that I cover extensively when I'm teaching um, early British novels is how this figure of the orphan is so prevalent in these novels, um, the ones who live and uh, grow up, um, because the, the orphan is kind of a metaphor for the modern individual who who is you know, the modern individual is able to kind of forge out a path for him or herself because of social mobility and literacy and all these things. And so, um, and so the place of an orphan in kind of the European context is very, very different from this American context where, you know, we sort of started out as orphans. It's not like a, a new condition. So I'm not saying it half as well as um, she did in this question, but I, I think that's a profound insight and I'm, yeah, I'm totally sold. Anything you want to add, Heidi? Nope. Applause. This sounds like <laughs> a, or like if, she, if this was one of my students, which I 
mean this in the very best sense, you are far surpassing me as a teacher here, but um, I would be like approved for a thesis, 10 pages. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Okay. Here's one from Jennifer. What do you see as psychological elements in the main characters? Are there any weaknesses in the area? How do you let you go first? Um, I saw this question on the Q and a, um, I, I think that I might misunderstand it because I think maybe we have we talked about this like a lot on the podcast, like their psychological, kind of their main psychological bents and then the weaknesses that have come from that. Is that the sense of the question, David? I'm wondering if the question is, are there weaknesses in Hawthorne's storytelling in that area? That's how I'm reading the question, but I could be wrong. Um, I actually think Hawthorne does a pretty good job of this. I think that he he gives us a, Karen. You you argued very convincingly in the beginning of our discussions that that their characters remain relatively stable. That they are um, their trajectories uh, are um, less psychological movement and more representations. Am I getting that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, they're they're psychologically rich and deep mm-hmm. as characters, but they sort of yeah, they remain it, static or stable. Yeah, the trajectory throughout. is just right, mm-hmm. right, just, right. And we don't get backstory, right? We don't mm-hmm. get like why Hester is, you know, did she have daddy issues, and is that why she was drawn to the to the pastor or whatever? We don't get that. We just get these characters fully formed, put into the situation in which they're in, um, and and then throughout the story, we see that Chillingworth is characterized by his desire for revenge, Dimsdale by his hidden guilt, um, and Hester by kind of taking by her scape identity of taking on the sufferings of others and um and we're left kind of wrestling with whether or not she overcomes that right um and and i think that hawthorne presents that very convincingly and consistently throughout the novel do you agree with that karen yeah i do and again going back to if i understand the question or not i mean this isn't a story that is about character in the same way other novels are especially later I think the later we go into writing novels being written um the more character becomes you know it uh, central um and so this um I I think this is not a character driven story it's more of a Mm. idea driven or theme driven um and so given that what it's doing I, I think the characterization is is really sophisticated and and illuminating and um really strong okay let me oh wrong button okay let's do this one um is this a star-crossed lover's tale it's from jennifer it seems like hester and arthur would have made a good match and hawthorne seems to indicate that hester was almost hoping for that deep down even after her ostracism and roger coming back when we get the natural family on the scaffold, it seems to speak to that desire. How does that square with the spiritual abuse of authority? Am I being too sympathetic to Dinsdale? I think this is an interesting question. I was thinking about this too, because Hawthorne is both being critical and sort of putting it in your, you know, if you're like, do you have these moments where you're kind of rooting for them to to actually run away or to be able to pull this, you know, this relationship off. And then I guess it seems like maybe he's uh, asking whether or not you should feel that way. Karen, what do you think about this? And then then Heidi. Yeah, before I answer the question, I want to say, isn't this the question? 
right? Isn't mm-hmm. this the question that we ask with every, like, um, every pastor who, I don't even want to use the word falls because that's, you know, that's, that's <laughs> who abuses or, 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 you know, uh, does this um, and they want to, you know, they, they either want to or do immediately come back to their, their place of prominence and, uh, and authority uh, because we have so much sympathy for them or, or, or we overlook um, those things so easily and expect too little of our, our leaders and spiritual authority. So I'm just saying, this is the question we're confronted with all the time still today. Um, and so as far as what the story is asking us to do, um, you know, that I think it's, I think it's, I think what the story is doing actually has a little less to do with um, Dimsdale being a pastor than it does with just sort of the, well, the, the love triangle and the, and the, I mean, it could have, it could have been someone else. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really thinking out loud because the story, this question has, has me thinking. Um, I think part of, part of the context of the story, the reason, you know, in a literary sense, why it was so easy to make the third person be Dimsdale a pastor is because within a, within a Puritan society, I think probably he had more freedom as a single man than other. I think there were so many constraints that it would have been, it it just would have been easier for this thing to happen to someone with, uh, Dimsdale's authority and, Hester in the particular situation she's in. So those are almost kind of like the the constraints that made something like this happen in a puritanical society. Does that make sense? It would have been harder for other characters. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think uh, I'm not sure how much the story, I want to think more about how much sympathy we're supposed to have for Dimsdale. It's a good question. I, I'm going to come across a little more emphatic, which is only because while Karen, while you were talking, I had some time to think. So, um, I, I do not think this is a star-crossed lover story. I think that their affection for each other is incidental only in the sense that it could have happened. The story, the story could have happened either way. The point of them isn't that they are a great couple separated from society. Um, and I think I, I can only answer for myself in terms of, I, I have very little sympathy for Dimsdale throughout the story. I find him cowardly and weak. And the fact that he let Hester suffer for so many years for him is, is so callous and selfish to me that I can't muster up a lot of sympathy for him. Um, and I I don't think he uses her as like a human shield in a malicious way. I just think he's a coward. Um, and in and in that sense, I I don't think it's like a Romeo and Juliet. They have this powerful love that's kept apart by societal forces and like no fault of their own. I think that they are uh, complicit, both of them, in what happens to them. As and the society is also complicit. And we have this supernatural kind of um, clash of sin and grace that creates this cosmic question that's raised by the story. And all of that means that the couple themselves, they they matter insofar as they contribute to all of that. 
But as you pointed out, Karen, I think so eloquently and convinced me there, this is not a story about characters. Um, and so it's the point isn't that they fell in love and then society kept them apart. The point is that they committed yeah. adultery. And what is what does that mean for America, for the universe, and for and for these two people and the relationships yeah. that are impacted by it? So I think it's the adultery that matters, not their love and affection. I totally well, agree. Yeah. Should we just- I feel like that's we should just stop there then. <laughs> Great. <laughs> feels like a feels like a reasonable, uh, conclusive place to end. It's the adultery but... that matters. Period. <laughs> <laughs> the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although there is a oh, there, I just ran across this. There is a comment here from Joy, who says, "I would really, I really appreciate the thoughtful conversation. I would not recommend teaching it during COVID in 2020 over Zoom for a sophomore level intro to fiction course at a public university as part of your MA program. Girl, Zero out of ten would him. never do again." Wow, <laughs> I applaud yeah. you. Tough days. Um, okay, Karen. Before we let you go, I want to ask if you have any final thoughts on this book. Um, anything else that you want to share, um, or anything else that you want to plug before you go? We've got the you got the new book coming out in August. Everyone should go get that. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, anything else do you want to mention? You always ask for final thoughts and here I am unprepared as usual. Um, <laughs> no, I, I guess what I will say is that my final thought is that um, for a number of reasons, I feel like this conversation has illuminated so much more about this work um, and made me think more about it. maybe because I'm a little less familiar with it in the first place as, than I am the other ones we've talked about. But also, I just think this work invites so much, so many of these kinds of questions uh, that are really good questions and um, don't necessarily have definitive answers because that's not how Hawthorne writes. And so this has just been um, a really rich conversation and um, grateful for you guys and for the community that asked such good questions. So kudos to all of you. Well, well, yeah, it's, no, it's it's great to have you here. I don't know. It's such a treat for me because whenever, Karen, whenever you're on the show, I always feel like I'm getting um, this like free masterclass. So it's such, and, and able to engage. So I really appreciate you bringing in your expertise. For me, I, my, um, the, the thing that I've been thinking so much about, um, two things. One is kind of that feminine identity that we talked about today. That was really fun to talk about because it's like forefront on my mind right now. Um, and then also that gap between style and profundity. Like I, because as I was reading Hawthorne, I kept, I was kept editing him in my head, which I'm not, a, I'm not as great. I am he's a better writer than me, but I kept thinking, oh, I wish that you would have been a little less, you know, on the nose. Everybody take a shot. If you're keeping track of this is going on the bingo card now, um, that, but, and yet in spite of that, it still remained this, it still haunts my mind. Like I thought so much about the book when we weren't reading and talk about we're reading it and talking about it. And so somehow there's this gap this really interesting liminal dwelling place that I've been in, in reading this novel. And I'm like, this is such a great novel, but there's, I think, I think there are some objective flaws in the writing. So I'm just really curious about that space. And I've been thinking a lot about it. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things I'm kind of left with after finishing the novel. 
Yeah, and that's not something that won't take just tons and tons of thought or anything. Right. Yeah. No, that's not a, that's really less of a final thought than it is a final giant gap in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think it's, I mean, it's a great question. Those are, you know, I think this conversation is, these conversations have left us with a lot to to linger over, um, which again, it's the mark of a book worth worth reading. Uh, Karen, again, thank you so much for doing this. Good luck with the launch of the new book. As I said, I'll put it in the show notes if people haven't ordered that yet, go pre-order it. Um, and then, you know, maybe, maybe one of these days we'll be able to do an event sometime soon uh, in support of the book. That'd be really fun. Thank you, Wendy. All right, for Heidi White, for Karen Swallow-Pryor, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Thank you.